0: Hello again, everybody. This is Ken Meyer. Welcome to City Talk. And if there is a headline to describe our guest, Miss Amanda Carr, it would be Local Girl Makes Good. (laughs) And she certainly has. And Amanda, first, it's great seeing you again. It's been a while, and it's a pleasure to have you here. You were written up in the Wall Street Journal.
1: Yeah, isn't that crazy? I know, and I remember the call from Nat Hentoff Uh, When he called me and um, I didn't know who Nat Hentoff was, you know, and and, uh, but his voice was extremely distinctive and uh, basically said, uh, it was a voicemail he left he said this is not Hentoff, <laughs> and I am going to write about you in the Wall Street Journal you know um, and that's how it started but um, no it was a great article and it, it was about uh, a, a recording that I had sent to him that he uh, evidently you know put high up on his on on his pedestal and, and wrote about it so what a thrill uh, to have that happen
0: you had a childhood that I would have loved because I love music, as you. Um, I, mean, I got an accordion when I was eight years old. My parents weren't in the music business, and yours were. So I want you to take a few minutes and tell me what it was like growing up with two people that were musically involved in your life.
1: Hmm. Well, you don't really think anything of it because you know, you just um it, it's just there. You know, we don't have the perspective of saying, "Oh, this is really terrific." Just like the town I grew in was grew up in was so beautiful, but you don't have perspective until you live other places. So, um my mother was at the at the time she had evolved into a lounge singer basically, but she grew up with big bands and big band singing. So, she crossed over genres and uh, my dad had quite a uh, career uh, uh, after uh, being in the Navy band uh, with many of the big bands that, um, you know, were significant, one of them being Tex ah. Um He traveled with them for a year, touring uh, with Edie Gourmet and Mel Lewis on drums and, and actually recorded with Tex Beneke. So um, by the time he got to Boston, um, you know, he already had some significant... Um, experience. Um, so when you got to Boston, there was like a, I don't know some kind of a GI Bill. Can maybe you even know what this is? But it was Schillinger House. Berkeley was called Schillinger House and uh, there were professional musicians actually going there uh, for free. Uh, Quincy Jones was in uh, my my father's class, and Arif Mardine, and it was just kind of crazy. And and he ended up in Herb Pomeroy's band, which is quite a significant Boston-based band, uh, Herb Pomeroy being part of the uh, jazz legacy here in in, in Boston. So um, both my parents, uh, I was influenced by them, but at the time I didn't know I was being influenced by them. And, and frankly, I had no interest in the kind of music that you know, they, they, they uh, were schooled in. Uh, so um, it wasn't until later on that I uh, enjoyed recording the American Songbook. Early on, I was into the pop stuff that my, uh, my mom did in the lounges.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you grew up in Hingham. Yes. Did you like Hingham?
1: Um, I always felt different. Um, I think the culture in Hingham was uh, quite conservative I mean there was definitely a, a kind of a a, a, a a way or a chronology you go to school you're in this club you dress like this you uh, you 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 know go to this dance and then you go to this college and you have college funds and you and, and this is what you do and then you get married have kids I don't know the whole the whole <laughs> thing just seemed very very templated Um but, I was very unique and different. And you know, no kid wants to feel different because you just you 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 don't you don't put that as a positive or in the positive column. I mean, some children are very fortunate that they realize how unique and and positive that is. But I was very creative, and my my thought was process was different, and, uh, you know, so I really didn't fit into the Hingham culture back in when I was was younger.
0: Now, when I was in school, I was in our high school dance band, I was in our high school orchestra, and I was in our high school chorus. Did, were you, did you take music when you were in school?
1: No. Um, I actually started professionally at 14, so I was gigging at 14, and I was in bands at 15. And, you know, back then, the... The, the legal age was 18 and they, they they had a relaxed you know drunk driving laws weren't what they were you know in in future years it was very relaxed I mean I could literally um, go and play in public places and not have you know the the, the labor board come down on you or, yeah. you know you 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 could you had the opportunity to do that so I I basically just followed in my mom's footsteps and I never never did the school activities. You know, I was very separate from my, my school activities, and uh, I, I just kind of went right into the professional community. Um, I think one of my dances, I was the actual band in the band that played for my high school dance. So, um... Yeah, and and whether that's good or bad, I mean, I look back and I I feel like, yeah, I missed out, but it was just a natural inclination for me to reach to the professional realm because that's kind of where I just automatically went to.
0: Okay, but how did the word spread that you were available and willing to work with a band if you weren't in school and... You didn't have teachers promoting you or anything like that.
1: Well, you know, I, I played in a small little club up the street. Um, my stepfather at the time would drop me off and, and pick me up. And I remember I made $45 a night. I was 14. And um, and and I guess, you know, back then before computers and cell phones, it, word of mouth was pretty prevalent and powerful. And um, a, a girlfriend said, hey, you know, there's a band that's looking for a keyboard player singer. Uh, Would you like to be in this band? And I said, sure, you know. And I remember the guitarist, who was 11 years older than me, I think he was 26 at the time, had to talk to my mom and get permission for me to be in this band because some of the stuff was on a school night. And she said, as long as you pick her up and you're the one picking her up and driving her home, she can do it. So my, my mother was very open to allowing me to be able to pursue music professionally just because that's what she did it, it it was kind of a different attitude than maybe what what is today
0: i have told people this and i'm sure it's true with you that there is an adrenaline that flows through your body when you're in front of or knowing that there is an audience out there listening there is um
1: and and i can speak to that using examples of when i'm sick or if I'm exhausted Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm just lying there and I'm saying, oh, I have to do a performance tonight. And it's, you know, an hour and a half from me lying, lying down saying, how am I even going to get the energy? And then, you know, I'm so dynamic on stage. There's an adrenaline. It just takes over no matter if you're sick, no matter if you're tired, it doesn't matter. You are somehow you transform your body. And I think the only other thing I can, compare it to is when, you know, a mother says, I don't have time to be sick. I got to take care of my children. You know, yeah. it's a, kind of the same thing that you're, you become a, a superhuman um, and because of the adrenaline, uh, because you just that you have to do it. So um, there's something about being in front of an audience that you don't want to fail or you don't want to be your best.
0: I remember one night. Or not be your best. I was all hunkered down in bed. It was the wintertime. And I got a call at 12.30 in the morning from WBZ, and they said, hey, Bob Raleigh can't make it. Can you get here? And I said, listen, if I can get a cab over here, I'll be there. I was there by 1 o'clock in the morning. I never felt like I had been in bed. I was wide awake, of course, ready, yeah. ready to rock, as they say.
1: That's exactly it, you know. And I think it's it's most performers, regardless of what kind of performing you do, um, even athletes, you know, it's it's yep. it's similar. It's similar.
0: Yep. Now, take me to what made you decide? I mean, you, right now you've got five CDs, at least that I know of, mm-hmm. that are that are out. But what? led you to even make your first one? How did you decide that, hey, I'm good enough to do this and sell these things?
1: <laughs> um, I think what happened was, is that when I came back from Los Angeles after living out there for a few years, um, it was really a natural thing if my mom needed me to fill in for her or do a gig. So my mom was, you know, still out and, and performing. And um, so she was doing a big band gig that she needed me to fill in for her. So It was easy for me to do. Um, I could sing the American Songbook. It was very natural for me to sing big band just because it it was an easy fit. And then I... what happened to me was I decided I decided in my head, "Hey, I think I like this stuff." <laughs> this stuff that I never even really paid attention to or thought about when I was younger because it just wasn't my thing. All of a sudden, seems to be becoming interesting to me and I I began to appreciate the lyric and appreciate the the melodies and and because it felt so natural to me, my inclination was, "Hey, I wonder how I'd sound recording this." And You know, I had obviously people encouraging me to do that. So that's what led me to my first demo. And what that demo turned into was a full-fledged CD because one of the songs on there uh, ended up being on a Jordan's Furniture commercial spot. Ah. And then... um, people asked for the CD etc um, so yeah my first effort you know it was a it was I listened back now of course with perspective but it was a good first effort it was honest and and my my delivery was genuine which is so important in the genre
0: now it was a boyfriend that led you to the west coast yes
1: yes um, a boyfriend uh, that uh, evolved into fiance yes he was a uh, did uh, quite well. He went out from St. Louis with Cheryl Crow actually. the two of oh, them yeah. went out there to make their way and she she got the Michael Jackson gig yeah. and he eventually <laughs> uh, worked with Thomas Dolby and then after that with Reba McIntyre and uh, recorded um, with Michael Jackson
0: after that. Now I remember reading a book by Connie Francis, who was a good friend of mine at the time. and she did not like the West Coast. She said not only the flowers but the people, were plastic. Hmm. How did you feel about the West Coast? Because you came back.
1: Well, I did. And I came back for a couple of different reasons. Um, I think that if, if, you know, things uh, were a little bit uh, easier for me out there and i didn't you know if it wasn't for the earthquake and getting caught in the rodney king riots and my fiance oh, wow. being killed in a plane crash
2: that'll, that'll
1: <laughs> and, do it <laughs> losing my job oh boy <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think that the combination of things um led me back to to familiar lands um but it is a very very different culture i mean it's you know over 3000 miles away and just cuz we're in the United States, you know, it 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 doesn't mean that, you know, everything is, you know, the same. It is a very different culture, but it's also a much 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 bigger landscape than it is here in Boston. Boston's a small little town that on a good day you could walk from end to end where Los Angeles is is massive and goes for hundreds of miles. And um, it's also, you know, by the border. So you have, you know, this kind of third-world country feel in some places. And um, it's just a much bigger place and feels a lot more transient. And And so you really have to know yourself very well, I believe, and really have a strong identity and direction or else it, you do feel lost out there and, and it is di- more difficult to connect with people.
0: When you first went were you scared?
1: I was traumatized. Um, I went out actually to be with my fiance, but I was I did not go out as a musician. I mean, he played on such a high level with, you know, pretty much stars. I mean, we went to the Grammy Awards together when he was nominated. And so when I went out there, I, I got transferred out there with my my corporate company, my corporate job. So the the getting readjusted out there was really difficult for me. I, I just felt Really, out of place for a while. And then not terribly long after that, my fiance went back on tour. So then I really felt, you know, a, a little bit out of sorts. Um and then all the and uh, all the uh, tragedies began to ensue after that. But um, I still go out there, and I love the fact that I know it so well. I feel like I've earned my my stripes um, <laughs> as somebody that lived out there for three and a half years. and Um, I really enjoy aspects of it out there. and, And part of me wishes that I could go out there more often just because now there's a history and a familiarity with it.
0: One of the people that you got to know, I know, was a Michael Jackson. What does it do to you when you hear all these stories about him and molesting young boys and this and that? Tell me about the real Michael Jackson.
1: Well, I didn't really get to know him too well. My, my girlfriend, Mary Collar, was his personal assistant, um, and uh, my other friend, Monty, was his uh, chef. Um, and so really there was no getting to know him. Um, I wasn't on those terms with him, but I was in his presence um, a, a few times, and um, you know, you, you there wasn't a lot of conversation, but I was in the midst of uh, part of his team, and people, uh, and of course Cheryl Crow, who was was working with him at the time. Um, I think that he was definitely uh, unique, and and my feeling is until you really know, you never really know, and rumors are powerful and can really manifest themselves into fact when if you you just you just never really know so i just separate the music from the person i love what he did musically i appreciated who he was as a performer um during the funerals of my fiance he personally called to say that he chose his track on to be on the dangerous album and um you know i know that he had a huge heart and he was incredibly sensitive and he he did a tremendous uh, service to us uh, to, to to add to our our american music history so that's how i view him and i don't really know anything else and the media is the media i really don't pay attention to it because it has really nothing to do with my personal experience
0: were drugs prevalent in where in, la, in on the west coast um
1: i, I in really, you know what, my my personal um, circle of people were, in order for them to achieve what they did on the level that they did, there was, there was no drugs. So it's really about who you are and who you're surrounded with, if you see it or not. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people I, I met that had a drug problem, but it really wasn't part of my personal experience and the relationships that I had out there. Um, so I'm sure the answer is yes. It's just that the, the the circle that I I intersected with there there wasn't that issue.
0: But Van Halen. <laughs> yeah, you got to work with him.
1: I didn't work with him. Or I know was just him as a, yeah, just know him. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, I mean, Eddie at the time, I mean, he was definitely a, a party guy. You know, and uh, he was married to Valerie at the time. And I think Wolfie was two <laughs> back then when I was out there. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of, uh, quote, unquote, hang time uh, with Eddie um, over at Thomas's house. And, you know, um, he was known to—when to, to uh, when I knew him, I, I don't really know about any drugs that he took. But um, I do know that, you know, he definitely enjoyed, enjoyed drinking at that time, you know, and he definitely— um, you know we we would we would all trade to see who was going to drive him home some nights <laughs> you know
0: all right you you did an around the world tour what made you decide to do that and how did you do it
1: um well i mean i didn't go to every continent but um like next month i'm going to china and i was there in in january and i, I still you know uh, i'll be back in australia in september so um i think that you know you I was my own manager I'm my own booker I'm my own everything you know I'm not really at a level where there's enough money to pay somebody to do that or there wasn't really enough career focus to ever get to that level I suppose I could but um so I just had um I had connections in certain places and we just made it happen so for example I had a journalist that you know, when a producer loved my CD and wanted me to come over to Italy, um, I went to Italy and, you know, did the Eurojazz Festival. And then I met musicians over there who the following year I went back and recorded a, a live concert with them and released that album. Um, so um, when I went over to, to London, I, I had experiences with other musicians. Same thing in Australia. Same thing in um, in in China. Um, and that's why I'm going back. So for me, what happens is, is that it's not about checking the boxes and saying I've played these areas and putting them on a on a docket. I am just so into the relationships and the people that I meet that I want to experience more with them and I want an opportunity to go back and share more music and 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 be spend more time with these people. So I I connect very deeply with um people I've worked with and played with and also people I've met in certain areas that I've been to so that's why I I, I love doing it um, And um, so it's a little bit different than maybe a, a tour that's planned where you have 20 dates and you're booked at all these festivals and you have a manager that's taking care of certain things um, I, I'm not I don't do those kinds of tours um, um, because I, I actually work work during the day here, mm-hmm. um, back in Boston here. So um, I don't, I'm don't. i not afforded to be able to do that at this time, too.
0: All right. Now, you have kind of a connection. You were not a victim, but you have a connection with the uh, Boston bombings that occurred on Patriots Day in 2013.
1: Um, I have a, a little bit of a connection in terms of how it inspired me and how, like many, many people were inspired by the spirit of Boston and how we just rose to come together, which, you know, many this happens many times when there's a tragedy. People become their best selves in the face of tragedy and come together to rise above it and prevail. And so as a musician, I was so inspired that I wanted to write an anthem or something that Boston could hold as something that represented this spirit, something that they could call their own and um, at first I wanted to do it so that the Boston Pops would play it because they had scored a song that I was part writer on and we we performed it on the Esplanade in 2011 so I thought well maybe we could write another song and have that also be played and this could be the anthem. So what happened was is um, I worked with John Finn who is the guitarist for the Boston Pops and just without him, this would never have happened. Without a few people that contributed creatively, but um, he helped me to record this and really get my thoughts down. And and uh, the 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 anthem, the Boston anthem, and um, it's been adopted. It's been played in schools. It's uh, it was adopted by uh, New Balance at Boston Landing. We opened up the Warrior Arena with it, and when I say we, I mean Charlie Farron, who sang, who I whose voice I heard. And who um, agreed to sing? And it's he even performs this um, at many different places, veterans rallies. Um, and like I said, some schools play it, some companies play it at their corporate events. Recently, they had a groundbreaking at Boston Landing for the new uh, track and and what's going to be a thirty five hundred seat venue, music venue, and it is the official song of Boston Landing. So, you know, it's it's really wonderful to have this song. And this anthem find its own way with people and have people find out about it and adopt it and be inspired by it. Because that's what an anthem does. It's supposed to give you chills and make you feel like a Bostonian.
0: I listened to it yesterday, as a matter of fact. I not only heard that, but I heard you do that old black magic, and it really was great.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad it it resonates with (coughs) you. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what we hope for when we create something musically.
0: All right. So what goes into writing a song?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting you ask that question because I've been asked that before. And, and of course, when you, when you get asked good interview questions, you say, hmm, I never thought about that before. <laughs> let, me, let me figure out how to answer this. Um, I'm inspired differently, so I approach songwriting differently. Sometimes it's lyrics that come first. Sometimes it's a melody that I can't get out of my head. Sometimes it's a concept um, and and so over the years, I've done a lot of corporate work where I was given parameters. Um, it might be for a company, and here's a message. This is what we want. It could be for the Boston Food Bank. Can you write something, you know, for the video that we're going to show for a fundraiser? So I'm given parameters, and then within those parameters, that, which I enjoy, I enjoy being given like a set of parameters. Um, I I come up with something and I write something. So uh, that inspires me to do it. I think it's a lot more difficult for me, or challenging, I should say, when I'm just coming up with something because I just want to write it. (laughs) Because for me, if it doesn't have a place to go, if the song doesn't have a place to go, like it's not somebody that commissioned you to write it, or if it's not for a client or if it's not an anthem that you imagine being played at the Esplanade, if it doesn't have a destination, that's when I have difficulty um, being inspired. So that's kind of how songwriting happens for me. It has to have like a a journey, a purpose, and I have to picture what the end destination is.
0: Now, I've heard, for example, a story about Nelson Riddle and he was on his way to a recording session with Frank Sinatra, and they said to him, we need one more song to make this a a, a good album. And he sat in the car and wrote, I've Got You Under My Skin. Uh, did that? Is that what happened with the song that you wrote for the Boston bombings, or how long did it take? Did it take like 10 minutes, a half hour, you are so funny. three days?
1: Um, it's really funny. I had on a cover photo on Facebook. Um, it was... It was funny um, that you should ask that. It actually came so quickly to me. I was, I, I was almost, I was channeling it through the, through the, through the clouds. Um, I've never been so um, uh, immersed and, um, you know, possessed by uh, a song having to come through me and and be written. And how it happened um, was that. John Finn and I were going to get together to exchange musical ideas. But I wrote on a napkin my to-do list that day. It was, you know, I I think it was like vacuum, pick up mail, um, you know, grocery shop, write anthem, and then, you know, do laundry. It was like (laughs) one of those, you know, it was on a list of things to do. But it came so, I was so overwhelmed that, that I actually wrote it within like, you know, a couple of hours or within a very small period of time, it overwhelmed me. So I I remember calling John and saying, John, I think I wrote it. I just think <laughs> I I wrote this thing, and I've got to come over and I have to get this out. I have to get this recorded. It's driving me crazy. It's it's possessed me. So yeah, in that particular instance, I was uh, it came very very quickly, as if it was as, as if it was already written and it was just being channeled through me.
0: You have also sung with the Boston Pops. Mm-hmm. Now, I have absolutely no idea how that would feel. I've been to Pops concerts <clears throat> and and seen people perform, but did you call up Keith Lockhart and oh, yeah, say, Hey, mean- <laughs> Keith. I want to do this in December. I want to read the night before Christmas mm. or I want to sing whatever. Uh or did he contact you and say, "Listen, I've heard your CDs and I love your work and I want you to sing with the Boston Pops." How does one get to be able to do that?
1: Well, I think that, you know, well the first the first answer is no nobody calls up Keith Lockhart and asks Keith anything. <laughs> and you go through the the channels of 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 being hired. Um, I think that—and what I'm really proud of is that, you know, I I have a reputation that has—just because I've been doing this for so many years, and I really—like I said, relationships matter to me. So when I'm working on a project or with people or with musicians— I want to do the best job as possible. It's really never about, oh, I want the spotlight or, you know, it's all about me. It's about really servicing whatever it is. You know, if I if I need to get coffee for the band and that serves the song the best, <laughs> then I'm getting coffee for the band. So jumping to the Boston Pops, um, the original way I intersected with the Pops was through my friend Michael Chicklis, And um, we, I, I offered up to the artistic director, Dennis Alves, the opportunity to maybe have um, Michael be the host for the Boston Pops for the Esplanade. And hey, by the way, we wrote this great song together. And I think because it's so patriotic, this would work. And they ran with it. They basically had... Uh, Pat Hallenbeck, who, you know, uh, did the orchestration for it for the Boston Pops and retrofitted it, so to speak, for their orchestra. And, of course, then Keith Lockhart was the conductor on it, Um, and he agreed also to the the program. So fast forward to New Year's Eve, a couple of New Year's Eves ago, you know, I've been hired by the Boston Pops since then. Um, to do a couple of corporate things with them, a couple of Boston Pops, um, you know, corporate concerts that aren't necessarily at, 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 at um,
0: Symphony, Hall. Symphony
1: Hall. But I did sing at Symphony Hall two New Year's Eves ago when they called me to say, Amanda, can you work with John Stevens and be the singer for New Year's Eve? So I think they know what I'll bring. They don't have to guess. And uh, they know that when they ask me to do something that they know exactly what what they're going to get entertainment wise and, and quality wise. But to sing with that orchestra, they are so supreme <laughs> that I, I, I usually I pride myself on my my pitch. And I'll tell you, if you're even one point oh, oh, six killer hertz off of, of pitch you're going to hear it with that orchestra it is just absolutely pristine and beautiful and to stand in front of them it's like you're wearing a huge coat made of strings it's beautiful
0: <laughs> give me an insight into Keith Lockhart
1: uh, probably one of the most astute hard working talented uh, people he works so hard to maintain the level and the quality that he provides. Um, He has one of the most incredible memories um, I have ever um, encountered. Um, You know, I'm really, I'm I'm really not a name he has to remember, yet, you know, I, I might not see him for two years, but he'll say something to me that will remind me of something that happened when we did the last thing together, and I'm blown away at his memory. Uh, He might remember a key I did something in. He might remember something that um, I said or something in a conversation. Um, And I've also seen him be given a piece of paper with something really, really... Uh, quick, that he has to memorize before he goes on stage, and his memorization is incredible. I'm so impressed by him on uh, uh, on so many levels.
0: It almost seems, from what I can tell, that the pops hardly have to even rehearse. Is that is that sort of true?
1: It is sort of true. I think when you when you the the thing is that anything that you put in front of them, they can read perfectly, <laughs> right? So where they have to rehearse is because they have so, so, so many guest artists who are coming in with maybe their own piano player or their own rhythm section, you know. Um, And so they, they have to rehearse new material that's brought in for them to play to make sure that it is sounding like the singer or the entertainer or the artist needs it to sound. So... You know, that's what they're rehearsing. They're rehearsing the material so that they know that they're presenting it the way that it they the, the artist wants it to be present presented
0: now just for my own edification when i first met you which was way way back yeah, it was way back <laughs> you cut
1: me in half and count the rings right? <laughs> yeah.
0: we were working with jordan rich mm-hmm. and many other great people at massasoit community college what a wonderful time yeah but how did you get involved with that jordan rich That's what I thought. Yeah. He
1: brought me into the fold. And what was so fun about that was that I've never acted before. I mean, I've just never been in plays or what I do musically never really translated like like you would ask before to school plays or to that kind of to to being a musical. So um, to be just put on stage and be in these fun skits <laughs> and be able to be goofy and fun, but be with professionals that do this anyway. It it, it provided such a comfort level for me. And Jordan always, um, as you know, I was with him as a co-commentator for the Esplanade for five years on yep. BZ and uh, on CBS Radio. Yep. Um, I wouldn't be able to do that without Jordan's, uh, uh, the, the level that Jordan, um, uh, you know, operates at because being around high-quality high professionals allow, allows me to be able to enter these realms and, and, and not, not flop, you know, <laughs> and be able to be myself and be my best self. Um, so I just had so much fun uh, doing that. So I have to thank Jordan for kind of being uh, my, my, uh, uh, the person that introduced me to that wonderful world.
0: How did you get involved with public radio? I mean, you're working in it now <laughs> as a program director.
1: I'm actually executive director, so I'm I'm not only executive director. I was general manager up until six months ago when I hired a general manager because oh it was my. just so, so over uh, overwhelming. It is, um, you know, a public radio station like. Um, if I can I mention, oh, that sure, like WICN Public Radio. Um, it's 50 years old, and it, it stands for a Worcester Intercollegiate Network. It started at Holy Cross 50 years ah. ago, and it was the intercollegiate. Um, network with WPI, with Worcester Polytech Institute. So, you know, uh, 50 years later, it's one of approximately 15 stations left in the country that it doesn't belong to a university that's freestanding, that is member supported, uh, much like GBH, where we have on-air fundraisers mm-hmm. to support the station, and it has live on-air hosts, um, you know, for 18 hours a day, providing you know host curated shows and music and jazz and blues and and um and soul i mean uh, it's just such an amazing station so to keep a station like that up and running when i came a couple of years ago i had to i basically knew how to make a radio out of a coconut from the <laughs> professor i mean i had to learn all aspects of public radio the corporation for public broadcasting requirements FCC regulations, all the equipment, how radio works, programming, um, how production works, managing the station, not-for-profit, not-for-profit chart yeah. of accounts, membership, membership. Uh, it just the list goes on underwriting so d- to to take a station like that and position it in two years to grow it to change out equipment to make sure that it's it's positioned to grow into this next phase with podcasting and to be able to put a recording studio into their per- performance hall I am so thrilled over the last two years to have had this experience with this radio station, Um, but it has been a tremendous learning experience for me, Um, even though this was the station that gave me my first big girl interview when I started recording, so I have a, a personal connection with it.
0: Now, I've been interested in and been in radio all my life. My parents gave me a tape recorder when I was 10 years old. And I just fell in love with the idea of doing it. I used to put together my own radio shows mm-hmm. and pretend I was I was an announcer. But how did it work with you? I mean, you you were involved in singing and with the Boston Pops and going to China. That seems like the farthest thing from being involved in any kind of radio.
1: So you're basically asking me, how did I get the gig?
0: Yeah, I guess you could put it that <laughs> way, yeah. <laughs>
1: well, um, I, as a joke, I tell people I got the job because I took it. Yeah. It's a tough it's a tough job. You know, you're you you have to be out there raising money for the station and then actually be in charge of operations of the station and manage all the volunteers and make sure that money's coming in and make sure that everything is operating. I mean, as I'm doing this interview the 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 building is going through renovations, and we had to figure out how we broadcast it from our streaming company and and put together a podcast because there's no electricity at the building right now. So learning how to do all of these things, I think that they asked me to do this because they know number one, it, it takes somebody super resourceful that understands what how important music is, that can be the liaison between the the artists that we support and also be able to work in a team environment and figure things out. I mean, it really if if you had a traditional GM, I don't I think that it, it, it doesn't necessarily work because things are changing so quickly, even in radio, technology, the expansion into other media platforms, you need somebody that have the ability to grow and have an open mind and be able to steer the radio station in those directions. So I think that they were very uh, adept and astute in, in hiring me um, to do it. But it certainly has been a tremendous challenge for me um, and, um, and a lot and definitely out of my comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: With all the technology that's around, like Twitter and social media sure, and of course, Computers. Mm. Are you glad you're doing this now rather than in the '70s when you first started?
1: Oh yeah, I'm, there's such there there's things that will never happen again um, that um, happened because of the organic nature of how things unfolded without the ability to put things online or to you know people. People had to find out about things organically and they went to more live shows and they communed together to to enjoy music together. Um, You followed a band longer. You had relationships with bands longer. You had an attention span so that you got to know a band. You knew when the drummer changed. You knew when, you know, all the all the people in the band, you knew more about their lives and you followed them more closely. You became more intimate with the music that you discovered and that became a part of you. it meant more. It was more um, it, it wasn't as fleeting where you know, this second you're hearing this band and this download and this this you know this yep. this on Spotify. Yep. you you had a you you actually had albums that had a theme that it only made sense if you listened to it all the way through um, both sides so you you had a more in-depth relationship with music back then so um that that to me um I think that younger generation is now getting back to that and I, 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 an example of that is like how headphones went to earbuds and now they're back to the big headphones again. <laughs> and how CDs were going away mm. and, and vinyls coming back because we want to hold something in our hands. Yep. P- um, pictures are coming back. I I'm, I'm, I saw like a new, what do, you, what do you call the cameras where it's the inst- instant camera um, pictures, um, the Polaroids.
0: Instant the, replay? Yeah, yeah. The,
1: in- the the instant Polaroids are back again because yep. we want to hold things in our hand we want that relationship with our music we we want to have the depth with it so even though we're in the digital world we're trying to create the organic relationship with whatever we want to hear or listen to or in but we're in the digital realm and, and we're finding ways to do that
0: i listened to an old talk show from wbz radio from years ago like the late 60s early 70s They were looking for a programming secretary at the time, and they said, you know, come to the station, bring your resume, and come in and see the program director, making it sound like you could just knock on the door and say, hey, I'd like to see whoever the program director is. I bet that's harder today, and is it also harder for people to get into the business via either it's national public radio or commercial radio?
1: Well, I don't think it's harder. I think that you just have to be able to have the 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 qualities that you know. I mean, if you get a resume on a on an email, it's the same thing as getting a printout and being put in front of you. At the end of the day, you have to have the skills, and uh, you have to have the talent for whatever it is that you're going for, or the experience. So, if you if there's a job posting. Um, I think that you, I mean, depends on, I mean, if it's a big conglomerate, you know, it's it's, it's the same thing as a big company. So the, obviously the bigger the company, the more resumes are going to flood in, the harder it is. But in general, there's a lot of radio stations that if they're looking for a program director or a development director or a membership director or somebody, a host on air, um, if you got the goods, you know, it's it, it's just as easy to get get it get a job than it, it it was back in the day i think
0: does amanda carr have a family
1: um meaning like my immediate family
0: well i mean do you have a husband do you have children oh,
1: <laughs> well no I, I i'm running solo so i'm i i don't i'm i'm just a lone wolf wolfess would, wolf- would you <laughs> would
0: you still encourage people to get into the broadcasting business um in what capacity anything
1: um, yeah, I think radio, I mean, it's now podcasting. I mean, podcasting is like broadcasting. Um, I think there's so many people jumping on the podcast market, and it's being delivered through iTunes and Spotify and um, other other channels. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that now people are able to set up microphones on their laptops mm-hmm. and be able to to recreate technology that wasn't, was only accessible to them at a particular location or a radio station. So I think that uh, it really just depends on what it is that somebody is looking to do in the industry. Do they uh, want to be in production? Do they want to put together and construct shows? Do they want to be an on-air personality? And if so, you know, is this something that Um, you know, that that there's a lot of ways that you can be on air. You can be on air on an internet radio station. You can be on air on a talk radio station. You can be on air on a local station. You can be doing your own podcast. So there's a lot of different ways that you can enjoy doing things um, in different capacities.
0: Do broadcast schools still serve a purpose like they did?
1: Um. I think that if anybody wants to be the best at what they do, I encourage them to get as much education on it as possible. And if there's still a curriculum out there, I think the Connecticut School of Broadcasting, Dick Robinson's schools are still Uh, out there. Um, I think, I mean, I can't speak to the the quality of the classes because I haven't been through the classes recently or, or any classes in any school right now, but I think that whatever you are venturing to do that you should explore the curriculum that speaks to that particular thing as much as possible. I mean, a lot of people go to YouTube University, but yeah. there's there's something about being in an environment. You know, we think that all we need is the knowledge or the information, but We need to actively be doing what it is that we want to pursue and getting better at it and being around individuals that have had experience in the business that can give you tips. I mean, a lot of people have maybe a not-so-realistic version of their talents, and you need people around you to, to break through you surrounding yourself with yourself, you know. And so these types of schools, I think... I mean, sure, they serve a purpose. They want to make money. They want to, you know, uh, provide, provide uh, you know, information. But also you're more immersed in, in a, 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 um, um, a, an of-like situation that you can practice, 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 practice. Mm-hmm. Do it as much as you possibly can.
0: What do you like to listen to for entertainment purposes? What do you enjoy?
1: Um, it varies on phases I'm going through and stages I'm going through, you know, um, and also moods. So just like we have a, a music collection, you know, it could be consist of rock, pop, folk. Um, it could be um, DVDs of your favorite movies. It can be, you know, online shows that you like to watch. For me, recently, I am really into um, like a lot of these uh, positive. Influencers and speakers, and um, you know that are uh, talking about personal evolution and how we grow um, and become mind, body, spirit, and how we can enhance our lives and 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 move forward as a complete being in whatever direction that you want to go in. How can we be more intentional? How can we be more pers- purposeful? and affect other people positively in our lives, how can we give back? So I'm kind of into that whole thing right now. So I'm listening to a lot of podcasts, and a lot of music that's inspirational, that speaks to that kind of positivity. So that's kind of what I'm listening to. You know, and occasionally it's great because, um, you know, I'll, I'll rock out or occasionally I'll, you know, just have. It, it, and, and this inspirational music can be from the folk genre, can be from the jazz genre. I'm just really into that kind of positivity messaging that's in music right now and in, in podcasts.
0: Well, listen, I want to thank you for coming in here and sharing your stories. I think Massachusetts is a better place because of the work that you have been doing. Are doing, and I hope we'll continue to do.
1: I'm hugging you on the radio right now, <laughs> Ken. That really makes me feel good. Thank you so much. It always, it's wonderful when you can think uh, that you've made any kind of a positive impact or uh, made any kind of a positive influence, especially in a city that I love so much and and love to call home.
0: I love it. You know, I was saying today, when I was a kid, I never thought I would do what I did here. The only connection I ever had with Boston was when Ted Williams would bat against the Yankees, and I used to listen to the Yankee broadcast. I never dreamed I'd spend my college career here, radio career, get married, work for the city, and now doing this. So you just never know.
1: You never know, and thank you so much for thinking so much of me to invite me in to talk with you today.
0: And I appreciate it, and that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody.
2: Tell the story